Well, uh, we had an exciting week. Some of our Burmese friends that you might or might be familiar with, uh, it's Jonathan's former roommate named Van. And uh, Van and Lily got married a little over a year ago. And this week, they gave birth to an American baby. And uh, as I show up at the hospital, our very own Mary Ray is already coming and with lots of love and like this shopping bag full of these great kids' clothes, of which Burmese, uh, it's a poor country, they're not a gift-giving culture, they're not sure what to do with this level of generosity, but that's Mary's love language. She can't not do that, and so she has aspirations to do other things like maybe a care calendar, and then uh, we were, we're talking about uh, the next tribe weekend in February, putting together uh, a baby shower, of which we have to always explain that we're not going to get the baby wet, uh, but we're going to shower them with love, and if you had a chance to be a part of one we did about a year and a half ago, you know this is a really fun cross-cultural experience. Um, uh, I just said, you guys show up and we'll bring the party. We'll bring the gifts and we'll bring the food uh, and we'll bring the prayers. And it's just a really special time uh, because like, like us, we, we, we value family and that kind of level of care is, is super special to them. Uh, so for some of you who don't know Van, uh, that's Lily. Uh, Lily can't speak a word of English, um, but that's Van. And Van is a, a wonderful sushi chef. And this is a party we threw at my house uh, with a roll your own sushi night. And I had to cut him off and say, quit making all the sushi for us. Just teach us how to make sushi. Uh, so we're hoping to do a couple of more of those roll your own sushi parties because that's just an easy invite to, uh, to anyone. Um, and it is really good. Um, speaking of community spotlight moments, I want to highlight one other thing. I like to acknowledge special occasions. Today is number 24. 24 years ago today, on Friday, <laughs> Friday the 13th, mind you, because my God is bigger than superstition, your very own got married to Laurel Diane Rankin, and uh, and and it was a, it was a, it was a very special occasion. And so, if you want to know what twenty four years of marital bliss looks like, um, it looks like sending your kid back to college with a heavy heart for your second semester. Um, and going to work for the day, and um, Laurel cooking chili and cornbread because we've got a meeting afterward, and getting ready to um, play worship and set up uh, the children's ministry. And so, happy anniversary, honey. <laughs> I got work to do too. So, somehow there'll be a meal involved tomorrow where we'll both come back together. But 24 years, thank you, Laurel, for enduring me. Uh, anyway, one thing I want to highlight, because it is an all-hands-on-deck event, and that is on March the 2nd. Saturday night, we're doing church, but we're doing church kind of in disguise. It is our third annual uh, anniversary party, I guess. Uh, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, because this year's theme is a masquerade, but we don't want to make it a mystery. And the reason I call it in all hands on deck is it is not simply enough for you to get your tickets and get there. It will kind of be a failure if you can't get anyone else there. What I realize is lots of people, if not everyone, is spiritually curious, spiritually hungry, longing for community, 
but they're not ready to step into a worship service and be overwhelmed by me. They're not ready to come into the private confines of a living room, but they might be willing to come to Luster Pearl East and um, with or without a mask, they'll be provided one, uh, and dress up for night. We have such a fun entertainment lined up. If you would like to help in terms of the planning and things like that, talk to Kathy or Shannon, but please, this is all of us involved in, in the throwing this party for the sake of others. That's, that's really, really what it's about. So um, parents, grandparents, I'm going to ask you now just to, with your kids in reach, just to lay hands on them. And um, we want to speak this blessing as we dismiss our kids uh, to continue on uh, with this blessing. And we're just going to pray this over them. The Lord bless you as you continue in your worship. Parents and grandparents, say that over them, please. Kids, thank you. I received that blessing. Have a great time. Thank you, Shannon. Are you with them tonight? Do you have any helpers with you? Oh, Jess, thank you guys so very much. We are so grateful for you guys to just pick up the mantle of apprenticing our kids and talking to them about things that matter a whole great deal. Well, um, I don't know how many of you are resolution setters or goal setters. Uh, it seems like everyone I talk to are like, oh, I don't do resolutions. And then everyone has these aspirational goals at the beginning of the year. Um, I would kind of contend that resolutions are sort of like bucket list items. They're personal, right? They should be, uh, unless you're Laurel Sunday, because she likes to try and project her bucket list onto me, which I don't think is within the parameters of what is a resolution or a bucket list. But one of her items is, because she's like 17 marathons into life, uh, is that we would one day run a marathon together, to which I would say, um, no, that's yours. <laughs> I work on Sundays, and um, I have no aspiration to run a marathon. Um, it's neat, it's bragging rights, but you're on your own, sister. Um, that being said, I want to follow Laurel's lead into this and say I have resolutions for each and every one of you. I'm taking pastoral liberties to say this. Oh, yeah, this is Laurel and I and Bjorn, first day of our vacation in Maui in 2007, 16, and um, she found a half marathon. I'm like, first day of vacation, and we ran uphill. There was no downhill. It was all uphill. Uh, but the, yeah, that's as close as she. Like, she is the most happy, and Bjorn and I are like, okay, now let the vacation begin, because we still got like 12 more days to actually have fun here. Um, but here's what I want to do, and, and I've got a text that I really want to unpack. I hope you brought your Bible or can open up an app. I hope you can take some notes um, because I want to do a deep dive. And here's my resolutions, uh, if you will, and you can argue with me about them, but I'm going to project them onto you. And it's this, I would love for each of us to grow in love this year. Now that sounds terribly trite, but we are a world in need of a practice of love. And here's what I would contend. All of us are really good at loving, but most of the time, me, I love me. I love my way. I have a way of loving how to get my way, loving myself first. But we need God's love. And God's love is always 
outward focus. So I want you to grow in love. And the two primary ways that we can do this, uh, well, three, is that we would grow in the word and we would grow in prayer. And, and then thirdly, I would love for you to grow as a tangible expression in service. There. Try and argue with that. Right? You came to church today and you want spiritual leadership? I'm trying to hand it to you. Uh, but uh, this passage, this, this, um, this book of Ephesians is just chock full of super important stuff that I think we can really glean from and gain from. And so um, Dallas Willard was the one um, I don't know how many of you follow Dallas Willard or read Dallas Willard. He died a couple years ago. Uh, he has uh, advanced degrees in both theology, but he was the department chair of philosophy at University of Southern California. He is a genius mind and a wonderful writer. Um, and I was in a small group of uh, leaders with him back in 2009. And he was just opening the, um, the floor up to just getting all sorts of questions. And this is what Dallas Willard said on his participation in church. Because when you have advanced degrees in theology and philosophy, what does going to church and checking the box actually do from you? And this is what he said. I go to church to learn how to love and to be loved. Wait, what? Actually, his whole quote was, we have people that don't know why they go to church. People who attend without reason end up as the most critical. Maybe because they've grown up in church their whole life and they're trying to get their way or they're trying to preserve how it was when they were kids or they had some moment and met Jesus and everyone was wearing choir robes and the pastor was wearing a tie and so they're going to fight these other battles or they change the color of the carpets or whatever. Well, we forgot why we go to church. And he says, for me, I simply... I go to church to love and to be loved, to be the body of Christ, gathering in his name. Sometimes worship happens, but it's not the reason. See, I think we need to approach church with the idea that it should produce something in us, right? Except we often approach church as consumers, and it's just, oh, I got there right on time, now feed me. Like, I went to a movie, and I got there right on time, and I got a seat. And, and we approach church kind of the same way as a consumer, and I think that's only half of it. And so that's what I want to pursue. See, when I talk about learning to love, in the Bible, love is more than an emotion. Love is always a call to action. And the call to action is this willingly act in the care for others. So here's what I want to do. We're a young church, but I want to look back at an early church. I want to look in, de in depth at the, uh, the life of the Ephesian church. Now, let me just paint a picture for what was happening in Ephesus. Ephesus and the way Paul writes in the book of Ephesians would have been probably so that the gospel story affects believers in their everyday life. Imagine if... I helped start Mission Hills Church and then I was gone for three years and, and, I, and I wanted to write a letter because I had heard things about you. So imagine the church planter writing from afar to the church that he helped start. Now here's what's unique is that number one, this is like Paul's only letter where he's not correcting anything. So you're not in trouble. 
So there's, there's good news. In fact, he's heard reports of how well they're doing, and he wants, and he shares how he's praying for them, which is super important because prayer often becomes the default thing that we do when things are bad. And yet Paul prays in their success. And we're going to unpack what that means. Now, Ephesus was this interesting place. It probably wasn't a single church, but it was a series of what we'll call, Mission Hill speak, tribes. They would be smaller kind of house gatherings. And so it wasn't just one congregation, but it was a series of churches uh, that were meeting together and they were supposed to share this letter among them. And so uh, in, in this uh, God's plan throughout all of history that the that the people of God often failed on was that God wanted this to be a multi-ethnic community. And so here, he's affirming that there's Jews and Gentiles. There's all life stages, but they're gathering. And, and what I'm going to talk about a little bit more next week is how eclectic and how unique that Ephesus was. Ephesus had been this major seaport trade town. So imagine if you're in the ancient world and you're in this huge port. So all of the spices and all of the linens and all of the goods and all of the currency and all of the cultures and all of the religions are coming through where you live. It is this cosmopolitan area. But what happened is, is there's this huge harbor that actually became so kind of filled that it wasn't able to have ships navigate in and out. They didn't have the technology for dredging. So the primary industry became about the worship of Artemis. And we'll talk a little bit more, but suffice to say this, the whole industry, the whole city was built up of artisans. Crafters, like woodworking and sculptors and iron workers, all presenting this goddess of Artemis that was so lucrative in this kind of religious industry. So Paul writes to, to a very creative class of people, a very cosmopolitan group of people. And, and again, I'll unpack that a little bit more. Now, if we were to break up, it's six chapters. If we were to break up the first part, it's Paul writing about the gospel story. He's just repackaging what the gospel means in the most experiential ways. He starts by talking about the nature of the Trinity and how we can experience the power of the gospel. And then it's broken up with this word, therefore. And he turns a corner and then he talks about all the really practical ways that the gospel applies to our life. Six chapters basically broken up three and three. It's an easy read, but it's a very dense read once you begin to unpack the layers of what's going on here. Uh, and so he introduces this, what I would call a really important shift for all of us. And it's the shift in how we view ourselves, that you are no longer the sum of your success and your prosperity, your talent, your charm. You're no longer the, the sum of your mistakes and your inadequacy. You are in Christ. 
It is a huge paradigm shift versus carrying around this resume of some good, some bad, and hopefully, and maybe looking at others thinking, I'm, I'm not as bad as them, and so maybe God will love me more. And all of a sudden, he's painting this new picture because once the gospel invades us and we find this new identity in the risen Christ, you are not the sum of what you find value or shame in. You're way bigger than that. And so all of a sudden I'm like, man, there is so much richness in these words. Um, and, And so let me, before I dive into this, let me just start by painting a picture of, uh, and telling a story of something uh, that I think does as well. I don't know how many of you are familiar with something called the Bethel Institute or the Bethel Foundation. It was started in Germany in 1867 by, get this, Friedrich von Bodelschwink. Yeah, there, I mean, tried saying that 10 times fast. And in 1867, they created, and get this, there was a, they wanted a Christian response to epilepsy. They saw there was a need, they saw there was an opportunity, and so they gathered together, and they put together this primary Christian expression of care for those with a physical disability. But here's what happened. It kept growing. Um, By the 1900s, this thing had begun to expand to several hundred. Um, By 1910, Frederick Sr. died. Frederick Jr. takes over the reins. By 1930, this had become a whole town with schools, with farms, uh, with factories, housing for nurses, patients, caregivers, and they had expanded their platform to involve a Christian's response to mentally and physically disabled. What's unique is the timeline. I just said in 1930, in Germany, being the primary, affecting thousands, they had 14 different locations all throughout the country so that they could care for the mentally and physically able. They they had even created lending institutions, creating factories so that these people with disabilities could be cared for. So we think of Nazi Germany as the Holocaust, except they were so into purifying the DNA pool that they were creating this this kind of cleansing of all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a contemporary. He became friends with the the von Bodelschwings. And and so uh, he actually visited them and started growing. His words are so powerful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, left and and felt called to go back. And he was in America and he knew what going back went because he was part of this Christian movement that thought the the Nazi regime was wrong and he went back and he was arrested anyway. And a day before World War II ended, he was hung with a piano string. He knew what it meant to go back. But he was committed to the resistance. He was committed to being light. And there's these wonderful stories, if you've never read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But he was a contemporary of them. And this is what he says as he visited the Bethel uh, Foundation. It was the gospel made visible. Get this. The fairy tale landscape of grace. The physically and mentally disabled were cared for in a palpably Christian atmosphere. Essentially, 
a little community living in the reign of the Nazis. And so Fritz Jr., he opposed the euthanization, he opposed the sterilization process, and he resisted what, what the Nazis were calling these mercy killings of feeble-minded children. And there was this green form that they were required by law to fill out, and he quit refusing them. In fact, the staff bought in behind the leader, and the staff started saying they expressed the willingness to forcibly resist any attempted transportation of the sick persons by force. And, he, and, and uh, uh, Fritz is what they called Junior, knew the surgeon who was the private doctor of Hitler and he opposed him. Um, and, and this Bethel, Bethel place was essentially bombed by the, um, by the Brits, right? Um, but here's what uh, this, this other historian wrote. Um, his name was, he was a noted psychi psychiatrist, Carl Stern's memoir. He, he wrote in The Pillar of Fire, there was a famous Lutheran pastor, Bodelschwink, who built up a huge colony of feeble-minded idiots and epileptics in Bethel in Western Germany. And during the war, when the Nazis carried out the slaughter of all mental patients, Pastor Bodelschwink insisted that we would be killed together with his inmates. It was only on the basis of his international fame that the politicians let, a, let him get away with it and let him and the inmates of his colony live. That was a kind of latch-ditch stand for Christianity. The story that we don't know going on. I love the words that uh, Friedrich von Bodelschwing said. He says, you can put me in a concentration camp if you want. That is your affair. But as long as I am free, you do not touch one of my patients. I cannot change to fit the times or the wishes of the Fuhrer. I stand under the orders of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on now. I believe this is exactly the kind of Jesus community Paul was painting a picture for in Ephesus. A multi-ethnic community who are living as aliens and strangers in the shadow of Artemis. And he's like, there's a way to live differently. The way of the world. And so he starts by talking about what is power. And friends, we've got to talk about what is power. And Ephesians is a wonderful outline to talk about how we think of power. And so open with me to, to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And the first part of it is he opens with this poem. And I'm not going to unpack the poem. It's very dense. But he, he basically introduces the idea of the Trinity. The Father, then the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The nature of it and how it's at work. And he says some really unique and, and special things about it. But um, what I really want to focus on is the second half. Because he starts out with this poem praising God thanking God for his faithfulness, and then he prays a prayer for them. And I think that prayer becomes a template for how we should learn to pray. Um, now, I would say this. I don't know if it's because I went to seminary or I just pray more than people, but you and I have the equal prayers before our, our Father in heaven, right? Um, I, I just get asked to pray a lot. And I would say this, I often don't know how to pray. I get thrown into situations where I'm supposed to have something profound to say, and I just don't. Um, I try and discern what the Spirit might be saying. But this passage, if you want to learn to pray, learn a language of prayer, I would describe it this way. Learning a language of prayer is like building your thesaurus. 
The more you pray, the more you read scripture, the more you have a dialogue with God. Your vocabulary begins to expand, but you also learn to discern how it is you're supposed to pray. And this is really significant for how Paul prays here. So I hope you can just kind of learn from what Paul's talking about. Now, let me just begin in in, in verse 15. This is his prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about the faith, uh, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love for all saints. Saints is not an emotion. They, like us, were living with unlovable people. Some people are harder to love than others, except their faith and their expression of love had become, their willingness to care for those who were different than them had become a testimony. Paul's affirming them, writing back. And he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Um, So things are going well, and he still prays. (laughs) Now, prayer, if we're honest, is often thought of as crisis management, is it not? When things get bad, I pray more. When things are good, I kind of give myself credit. That's typically what happens. Except Paul prays for, for them in their success, which is super important. Because where do we learn the most lessons? Usually in failure. But he's praying for them that even in their success, they would still be able to discern the voice of God within their circumstances. Friends, we are living in a prosperous situation. We all have concerns. We all have fears. We all have needs, but we are blessed. So when Paul prays for those who are blessed, he's really modeling for us a way that we can be praying for each other because we need God in adversity as much as we need it in prosperity. It's just that the struggle, the suffering, the the crisis, the tragedy sort of jolts us a little bit more. And so he prays proactively because they're doing well. Um, And he's not trying to put out a fire. And we need to pray for success as well as struggle. Um, And so this is really significant to us um, because I think we're equally as vulnerable within our own prosperity and our own success. And when we do get our way and when things are going well and when the needs or, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'll use the example of marriage. If I said, you know, in a couple months, we're going to put together a marriage retreat, one of the things is, is that when you're at odds in marriage, you don't want to go on a marriage retreat. But when things are good in in marriage, you're like, oh, no, we're fine. We don't actually need that. And so we often lack the kind of initiative that wants to say, we should just keep doing proactive work. As a pastor, um, I enter into a lot of problems in the 11th hour. (laughs) Uh, no one really comes to me and say, I just want to grow. Can you give me some stuff? Can you help me with it? Can you? No, it's usually, can you help me put out this fire? And we're all sort of like that. And so Paul is addressing people who are doing well, and he prays in three ways for them. Uh, and, and so uh, this is a radically different way for us uh, to begin to pray. Um, and so um, let me just highlight this, and you might want to write this down. None of the things that he prays for our circumstances. Most of what I pray for is circumstances. <laughs> Paul, and by the way, this is one of four letters. Where is he? He's in jail. 
He's in jail and he's not asking for help. If I'm writing to a church that I helped start, I'm like, friends, I'm like in debtor's prison. Could you at least hook me up with some food? I need a meal plan. Hey, could you come and visit me? He doesn't even mention it. But he's writing from jail. Not about his circumstances and not about theirs. And so this is rich for us to actually grow in how we might pray also. And he says uh, in verse 17, I keep asking that God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I also pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you and the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of, the mighty, of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Oh. Paul prays a little more intensely, a little more um, eloquently than I. He seems to be tapping into something. There's a lot of beautiful imagery in that, and it's super dense. But let's just break that down a little. So when he starts to pray in verse 17, the wisdom and revelation to know him better, not circumstances, but whatever you're going through, the way I want to pray for you is that even in that, hard or good, struggle or victory that in the midst of it you would have wisdom and revelation so that you would see God in it how many of us are constantly praying God end this God fix this God do this God provide this so I feel completely helpless right now with my son it's a new transition for him. It's been good. It's been hard. There's some things that we really want to see developed with him living away, and I am completely helpless. And so I want to pray for friendships, and I do. I, I want to pray for great grades, and I do. But you know what I started praying? Is God, in the midst of his greatest need, in the midst of feeling really lonely, in the midst of asking all sorts of questions for how hard he's working and not getting the results that he really wants, Help them have wisdom and revelation to find you in the middle of it. So I pray for you. Got a promotion? God, give them the wisdom and revelation to see how you're stewarding their influence. Need a job? God, give them the wisdom and revelation to be able to, in this moment, see how you're near. Come on. God's with us in the valley of despair as much as he is in God providing for our every need. But God walking through, we need eyes to see. And this is, I think, a transformational way that we can pray. And Paul prays that we might see and sense God's presence, glorify him in the middle, and learn from it in the future. And so what I would simply say is if you have ever been let down in prayer, if you have ever felt like every single one of my prayers hits that ceiling and bounces back down, then I would simply say, let this model Hear me, heal some of your expectation, if not your theology. It's very easy to somehow hear how God answers prayers, and then we start rubbing God or our Bible like a lucky rabbit's foot, seeing like if this is going to work. Now we begin to pray as saying, God, this is my reality. 
help me not only see you at work, but glorify you in the midst of it. This is his prayer. And they're prospering. They're doing well. Their testimony is well known. And he's like, oh God, help them see you. Because what happens is, is we quit depending on God. We quit having a hunger for God. Uh, let me move on. And he goes into verse 18 and he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. See, we need help seeing our calling and our inheritance. And what that means is that all of us are called by God regardless of your vocation. Stay-at-home mom, banker. School teacher, artist, full-time student, nurse, all are called for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what he's praying is that regardless of your day job, you would see yourself as, as sort of sanctioned by God to put the divine on display and walk in this beautiful inheritance. And so um, again, Paul doesn't pray for circumstances for them or even for him. Paul prays for a quality of relationship to see God and experience him through the circumstances. And what I would simply say is this. Circumstances don't define the meaning of our life. They help tell the story, but the meaning of our life is found in the hope and in the future in Christ. It is very easy for me to get so overwhelmed with what is hard or difficult or impossible um, or, 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 or how I feel like I feel most vulnerable and somehow let it define me in terms of my joy, in terms of my confidence. Uh, and I would simply say uh, the circumstances of my life should not define my life. And Paul gives us the encouragement. Now, verse 19 and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Okay, incomparably great power. He immediately qualifies the nature of power that we are to seek. And this is where I would simply say, where I came up with the name of this series, We Choose to Zag. Because when the world zigs for lots of influence, exerting lots of control, laying down authority because I have positional leadership over you, Paul zags, and he talks about a different kind of power. And in this case, it's the power to pardon. In this case, it's the power to serve. In this case, it's the power to not necessarily feel like I have to survive, but I can give my life as an offering because my life is in Christ and my existence, my calling is to glorify our Father in heaven. This is what Paul is encouraging them to do, even in the midst of it. And so uh, in, in this moment, it's, it, <laughs> Paul prays that we might, if you will, zag for the same power and, uh, uh, that turns and transforms the death of Jesus into resurrection life. Paul wants us to wake up to the privilege and the challenge that we, you and I, are God's salvation people. We are not simply 
infants going to God with everything we need, he actually has entrusted us that's this beautiful inheritance to live with his power and to do God's work of healing, of restoration, of forgiveness, all of these things. And really what this is is a reference to the deliverance of the people of God out of Egypt, which is central to the Hebrew story. So he, it's, this, it's this deliverance, this love, and the call to be set apart. And he says, pray that your eyes might be open to see your life in light of the larger story of God's good and redemptive work. Well, then he starts to give an allusion on where we'll finish in several weeks is where he starts to talk about spiritual warfare because he's talking about not just this present age, but the age to come. And he's talking about unseen powers. Uh, but, But he says in verse 21, far above any rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Uh, What he does is God made a good world, um, but it became tainted by our sin. And the age to come has come crashing in to this present reality in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who didn't give into every temptation that we face every day and succumb to often. And so the power then is to overcome, take the most tragic, unjust, selfish, wretched experiences in people and through a relationship with Christ, restore life in this present age. That's that's power. That's resurrection. That's an inheritance. Um, And we can either live with that inheritance or actually just struggle and and just try and survive. But God has invited us into so much. And because of his love and mercy, he has the power to reverse death to life. See, Jesus was the human being that God intended all humans to be. And now in Jesus, we have that same power, that same authority. So here's what God's power is up to in our world. It's not to underwrite our prosperity. It's not to underwrite or or create the pathway to the stars. What it is, it's the power to take all of the things that are wretched and experiences and restore life. Our understanding about physical death is often viewed as the enemy. Minimally, at least, as a profound loss. But death never gets the last word because Jesus rose from the dead. And whatever power God exerted that raised Jesus from the dead will also manifest in my life too, one day. And so this resurrection power in Paul's letters, as we'll see, is not just about physical death, but about the power to change us, to change us. Change patterns of believing, patterns of behaving. Paul's writing that in your present state of life, your temptations, your addictions, series of broken relationships, your success, all of these things is not the final word. He prays that you would have faith in the power of God to reverse your life into something new. And so there's a phrase, and this is kind of how I want to spend our time closing. I want to, I want to, one of the things we started with Mission Hills was this idea that Mission Hills would be what I would simply call a lifestyle church. A lifestyle church that makes people a little uncomfortable because we want to have a call to action. 
not out of religious obligation, not out of guilt, not of coercion, but this idea that we're growing in love. And so growing in love means we have this growing expression of faith. But to be able to do that, there's a couple of things that we need to do for ourselves. And that is we need to be rooted in the word. And one of my great fears as a pastor is that this is the only time you are in the word. That's like eating once a week, spiritually speaking. And then I, I worry that our prayer lives are just so tame, that it don't actually require faith. God, bless this, help this, keep them safe, and all of these sort of managed prayers. And I wonder, is, it, is the reason we don't experience more miracles is because we don't pray in more faith? And so this year, I want to try and kind of steer the ship in some different ways. And just through this series, I want to give you a couple of really strong homework applicational assignments. And the first one is this. Um, I would love for you to dive deep into Ephesians. And the book of Ephesians, again, is this gospel story and how it applies. And especially in the first half, Paul keeps using this, what I would call an identity statement. The term in Christ in him or with him is littered through this book. And I believe every time we read that, he's trying to convince us of who we are in Christ. That again, we're not the sum of all of our successes and failures. We're not the sum of all of our mistakes and, and inadequacies. You are in Christ. And so what I've done in several of my Bibles is just go through with a highlighter or with an underlight, and every time I see the words in Christ, I just, I just outline the verse. Because I want to cherry pick my new identity. Super important for how we see ourselves in light of our belief in Christ. So um, I want to task you with that. I want to task you with personal Bible study to just be reading through the book and, and just highlighting those verses. It's only six chapters. It won't take long. But again, I want to spend some time in the Word. Um, and then the other thing that I, I, would, I would simply say is that I want to um, start to kind of shift uh, how we pray. Um, and, and again, prayer reveals what we believe, our, where our strength um, and, and the power actually comes from. Dallas Willard said, and I'm re-quoting, um, I go to church to love and to be loved. Where do you go to learn love? Do you just hope that it somehow magically grows in your heart? Because um, we really have no strategy to grow in love. Sometimes we grow in obligation. Um, sometimes we grow in sort of um, determination. But uh, we set goals and objectives, and none of that is wrong. But I simply would submit that how can we grow in love? I would say this. Um, the Lord has sort of, I didn't prepare for this, but like particularly not just in the immigration crisis that has been plaguing our country, but with this Burmese community, it is so much work. It is so much work. And they make different choices than I make. Um, we're talking this week because um, we're trying to help Jonathan with a van and he makes choices like you would if you were raising a child and I don't mean that to be such a derogatory thing but here's the thing that I remind myself oh my god there was never a car in his family to know how to take care of a car oh 
Like I remember watching my dad take care of our cars and if something went wrong, dad was gonna take care of it. He never had any model for this. So he never even had a driver's license. There was never a personal vehicle in their family. So here he is at 30 some years of age trying to figure out how do I own a vehicle? And we're trying to help him. Help him make good choices before he makes not good choices. But my point is this, the more I got involved, the more my heart just began to open and I realized, shoot, I, I love this community and it's so much work. And God just began to open my heart and it's so much work. But I'm learning how to love people that are different than myself. In fact, next week, several of the people who have been a part of the ESL class are going to be joining us. Uh, I'm just so, so thrilled. So we might have a little translation going on and hopefully a couple of testimonies going on because I want to, I mean, I'm thinking if we're studying Ephesians, we got to have a little bit more of a multi-ethnic gathering, right? I mean, that just makes sense. And we're hoping to start a, a worship gathering in a tribe for the Burmese community this year. And so there's just some fun things in, in the works. But my point is this, I want us to go to church with the idea that it's supposed to produce something. So can I just kind of reset how we're I'm so afraid that churches are set up as places for consumers, the most convenient times and the most comfortable environments. But I would like to kind of reset that a little because church as family looks different. What if we began to love our church as our own family? Would that change? Would there be another level of sacrifice? Would there be another level of gracious accommodation I think that's a way to grow in love because growing in love is not going to feel like a goosebump but growing in love feels like a workout but it's what we're invited into one of the things I'd love I would love for us to just start seeing like 3 30 as the time we're shooting to get to church why because it's family time we're not just trying to get here right at four because that's when it starts no, we want to get here because there's fellowship here. And some of these faces are the only time I get to see them during the week. I mean, think about the things you show up to on time. It's usually like a movie or a dinner reservation, right? And, and you don't want to be late. But that's consumptive. What I'd like is to have more of an experience. One of the things I'd like to do also is, is start praying beforehand. Uh, I don't know what your prayer life is like. They always say, like, the fastest way to start a small group is to call a prayer meeting because people don't go to pray. But what if we just started praying together and, and I just had a little room out in front and you just come in early, pray with me for 15 minutes about needs, opportunities, things like that. And so I would just welcome you to show up early, start fellowshipping, but if you want to come and pray. One of the things I'd also like to do, I've talked to Laurel about this. I see these um, worksheets in the back. I'd like to worship different with our kids. You know, one of the things we did with Annika, and she was always so fun, um, I'd always put her, like, at, at our church, it was like this tiered thing, and so you could just stand her right there, and she would, like, want to sing, but she'd want to hear you. And we would just stand there, belting out worship courses. And if there was a chance to pray, she was going to hear me pray. I remember growing up with my mom, and my mom lifting hands in worship. It it was such a testimony. What I don't want to do is allow kids to tolerate our experience until they get to have their experience. What I want to do is validate them as participants. So I'd like to do away with the worksheets because we're going to start using those in the classroom. And by the way, parents, those are so you can have an idea of what they're learning and experiencing. They go with the lesson. But what I'd like to do is have you have them, if they're little enough, stand them on the chair. 
Let them hear your voice sing out loud. Let them see your hands go up. Let them hear you pray. Prompt them, encourage them. You are going to disciple them in worship. This is what I think it means to have kind of an intergenerational gathering for worship that isn't just perfunctory like the kids are in here. I really want us to be more intentional with how we apprentice the kids. So I have these ideas. In fact, this week, I want to put together this thing called the family business because we're in a family business here, right? This is our community. But but, um, I want to give you more tangible ways to express faith as a family. And so part of showing up early is we could use some more help. We've had two people doing sound the whole time. Zavi and Kevin have just been champion. If, if you would be willing to help with sound and slides, we, we want to we express hospitality in practical ways, but we want your kids to see you a part of that. And so loving your family is, means like we share in the family chores, the family opportunities. So we're creating a place in advance for others, Right? And so there's more opportunity for us to come early, to set up. And, and I would love for you to just to think about signing up as a family as kind of a ministry event, a chance to apprentice kids. Like we are not raising consumers. We're raising Christ followers. And what it means isn't we just go to the show and enjoy the show because all of our evaluation metrics are really flawed. How was church today? Oh, it was good. Like last night's movie was good or last night's concert was good. What well, is good? I mean, please, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be insulting about it. I like to be told I did good, right? But nevertheless, my point is that I want us to have a, like, I show up to church to learn how to love. And this is my family. And so I want to, I want to practice that in this laboratory together. So we've got some fun things worked up, and this is a fun series to do a deep dive in. But uh, B, I want to invite you to come up. We're going to have a time of worship uh, and then we're going to close with communion tonight. And we're, we are excited about what God's doing here. God has been so faithful. And so I'm so glad that um, we get to come together and see and explore what it means to be this, this kind of emerging young child into adulthood as we grow in, in our faith, in, the, in knowledge of the word, and, and, and in prayer together. So let's worship together and then we'll have communion.